Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. Florence Nightingale wasn't a nurse. She was a pioneering statistician, an expert on military-based medical care, hospital management and hospital design, a published author, an epidemiology innovator, a war hero, a comfort in the dark of night, a nursing advocate and educator, and lastly, sometimes, she was a nurse. The end. Let's talk about Florence Nightingale. But first, let's drop her into history. A Russian expedition had the first confirmed sighting of the continent of Antarctica. Shortly after that, an English expedition saw the same continent and claimed it for Britain. The Missouri Compromise passed in the U.S., which allowed Missouri to join the Union as a slave state and Maine to join as a free state. Ancient armless Greek statue, the Venus de Milo, was discovered on the island of Milos. Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson stood on the steps of a New Jersey courthouse and ate the fruit of a decorative plant to prove that the tomato was not poisonous. James Monroe was elected for his second term as U.S. president. King George IV ruled the United Kingdom, and Alexander I was emperor of Russia. Mary Seacole turned 15 years old, and the future Queen Victoria had her first birthday. Anne Bronte, Susan B. Anthony, Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale, were all born. And in 1820, another Nightingale, Florence, was also born. Florence Nightingale was born on May 12, 1820, in Florence, Italy, the second of the two daughters of William Edward Nightingale and Frances Smith Nightingale. Remember that thing called an entail that caused all that fuss in season one of Downton Abbey? <laughs> Rules about not leaving the estate to lady persons or breaking it up? Well, Florence's papa was both the beneficiary and the victim of an entail. Papa had been born and brought up in, let's call it, Bronte country. <laughs> His yeah. people were wealthy industrialists from Yorkshire. No titles, no posh accents, certainly no posh manners, but what they had was hard work. They administered mines and factories, and they had made good investments for several generations. And this made them quite prominent in the region. The family name, when Papa was born, was Shore. His name at birth was William Shore. But Papa, at the age of 10, inherited a vast fortune from his mother's bachelor uncle. His mother didn't inherit because she's a lady person, but her male heir, that's entail, that work. Curiously, though, this entail specified if Papa didn't ever have male children, this vast fortune would pass to his sister. That's strange, don't you think? Yes, I do. The uncle, they called him Mad Peter Nightingale. And it wasn't like that he was mad. He was just this kind of eccentric, kooky, brilliant man who had taken a, already a fortune and multiplied it. I'm not sure if you're a certain level of economic security that you can say that you're mad. I think that's where eccentric comes into play. <laughs> Maybe they didn't like the word eccentric. It sounded too hoity-toity. Maybe. But for now, baby papa was absolutely drowning in money. I think we can safely say that. Yeah. One of the conditions of him taking on this money is that he was going to have to change his last name from Shore to Nightingale. Okay, not a problem. He wouldn't get the money until he was 21. That means he had up until 21 where he just was waiting to be extraordinarily rich. Don't feel too sorry for Papa because his own Papa had a significant amount of money. 
Yes, we're doing fine. Papa was educated. He went to boarding school. He went to Trinity College. He went to Edinburgh University. And in all of those places, he wasn't trained for anything. No specific classes. He just kind of took whatever he was interested in. Very much a educational dilettante. Because what are you going to do? Go work in a bank? No. No, no. Well, he traveled and he puttered around until he hit that magic age of 21 and came into his inheritance and happily changed his last name to Nightingale. Mama, Frances, who went by Fanny, was the daughter of a radical member of parliament. Radical and that he wanted the end of the slave trade. Radical that he wanted the end of religious discrimination or education for women. Like that kind of radical. It had been illegal to deny that Christ was the son of God. If you did that, it was illegal until this papa came along. That is, I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) Mama's family had also made their fortune in trade, but they worked in the grocery business. And by the time Mama was born, the family was hobnobbing with other members of parliament, directors of banks, the higher ups in the East India Company. Grandpa had bought his seat in parliament for like 3000 pounds and changed his social circle entirely. Can you still buy a seat in parliament? I'm guessing no. I'm going to guess no, too. I have no idea. (laughs) Well, Mama grew up in an unusual family, let's just say, for all the trappings of wealth and glamour and club memberships and multiple houses. You know, they were dissenters. They were not Church of England. They were Unitarians. And in this time, Unitarians were suspected of being closet atheists. That's... That's something else in in an era where you can be in trouble for denying the divinity of Jesus to be a secret atheist was another step, wasn't it? And then also their modern attitudes to child rearing were kind of looked askance at. You've seen Down Abbey again. They bring the children in between, say, four and five to see their parents. The nannies stand right there in case there's chaos. Everyone's in their best clothes. Their hair's been brushed. No one stinks. That's it. That's the upper class seeing of one's children. But In their family, it was, let's play with you. Tell me your hopes and dreams. Let's all travel together. Let's go on a big hike. This was a big family, too. What chaos there must have been. There were five boys and five girls. That's actually a lot of children to survive in in this time, too. It definitely is. Mama's mother always wore writing habits. People remarked upon it. Well, here's the thing. Mama was pregnant for, what, 15 16 years and writing habits at the time were considered very casual wear. So basically, Mama was walking around in her yoga pants all the time, (laughs) which I find very endearing of her. I think so, too. But Florence Nightingale's mother saw with her own eyeballs Marie Antoinette at table at Versailles and noted that she didn't need anything. Oh, yes. She climbed mountains. She rode boats. She toured museums and churches all over Europe. She had a delightful childhood. One of her brothers, one of those many brothers, had the very unusual and cool name of Octavius. Octavius went to boarding school with our friend Papa William. He would come home on the weekends and visit this big family wherever they were. Every time he came to visit, this shy young man was so taken with one of the sisters. Beautiful, tall, intimidating. Unfortunately, engaged to the younger son of an earl, which is, that's case closed. That's a bummer. But her father had had financial distresses. He had invested almost all his money in a whiskey distillery. And then it burnt down and there wasn't any insurance. So 
Fanny, this was the lady in question, had to have a talk with her father. Look, I know you're in love and son of an earl, that's a nice family, etc. But I cannot financially support you and your noble and poverty-stricken fiancé, Fanny. You know, feel free to scrape by or whatnot, live in a little cottage, but you cannot rely on me for money. And she broke off the engagement almost immediately and then agreed to marry her brother's enormously wealthy friend, William Nightingale. Now, Fanny was six years older than William. That was significant. So I can imagine that when they were growing up that she didn't even give a second thought to him when he came home with her brother. But suddenly she had to look at him and say, wow, where am I going to live for the rest of my life and in what style? I do think, at least on his part, that it was a love match. I think he'd had a crush on her for years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm very sorry to say, and this might be a character flaw, except for he was so young that I have to forgive it. William, who had hobnobbed at college with the cut glass accent crowd, shall I say, (laughs) and had been kind of overawed by the fashionable and cultivated Smith family of his friend Octavius, he was embarrassed at basically the Beverly Hillbillies that he saw his parents as now. They missed the wedding due to miscommunication of the time. And they missed the fancy after parties because he didn't invite them. And that is painful snobbery on Papa's side. Yeah. And you know what? There's actually a couple different stories floating around about this because uh, one of them that I've read a couple times was the one you just gave. But then there was another one that May, William's sister, did come to the wedding, but she felt really out of place because she didn't have the right clothes. The father was waiting for two hours on the side of the road. Now, I suspect this story came from their side of the family, just to catch a peek of his son and his new wife as they drove past. Well, I guess that Papa was thinking that his hold on his dream girl was rickety enough without his family jinxing it. But nevertheless, I feel really bad for them. Mm-hmm. Because it's not their fault. They have the wrong accent or whatever. And here they send their son to school to better himself, and he betters himself right out of their circle. It's just mm-hmm. kind of sad. And Fanny let him. Oh, Fanny didn't care. No. <laughs> no not at all. I'm so sorry, but we. <laughs> she did not care. No. Well, the newlyweds moved to Italy, to Naples, as their first port of call. And uh, they intended to spend a couple of years touring Europe as a honeymoon. Now, that's the level of wealth. Although, Europe was considered to be a far greater value if one is going to live for two years than it would have been to stay in England. Isn't that interesting? It's mm-hmm. cheaper to go on vacation than to stay at home. <laughs> I wish it was still that way. Well, I guess it is, depending on where you go. Not Italy. Well, uh, their first daughter was born there in Naples, Francis, after her mama, Parthenope. This is the delightful level of nerditude of this family. Parthenope was born in Naples, but she was named after the Greek community that morphed into Naples, Parthenope. And Parthenope was a siren, one of the sirens that would sing in lovely fashion to um, sailors as they drove by and try to lure them to their death on rocks. <laughs> Let's call our daughter that. That would be awesome. <laughs> if my child was named after his place of origin, his name would be Gig Harbor Graham. <laughs> that is not good. <laughs> Parthenope was not in the baby name wizard. I was actually kind of sad to see that. But you they know what it- else is not is Florence. Oh, I didn't even look for Florence. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really? It's not even in there. mm Wow. Well, there's two names you can use. Parthenope went by Parthe. She also went by Pop. That's what the family called her, Pop and Flo. How cute is that? (laughs) Parthenope was 
sickly from the very beginning. Now, unlike most women of her class, Fanny wanted to breastfeed. Nothing was working, and she eventually had to hire a wet nurse to come and feed her child. Unfortunately, the wet nurse's own child eventually died because he didn't have enough nutrition because his mother was feeding Parthenope. That's a side of wet nurses that we really don't think about is as much as the lady would like to provide milk enough for two babies, her body might not be able to. And I read um, a comment that said that wet nurses knew they were making a deal with the devil when they signed Mm. up. Yeah. About a year later, they had their second daughter named Florence as they had relocated in the interim to, you guessed it, Florence. Evidently, this was considered a boy's name. Isn't that interesting? Not a very common one at that. Also, she didn't have a middle name. Florence was just named after the town. There's no middle name. There's no honorarium name. Is that what... Is that the word? I don't, that was unusual for the time. Incidentally, I think I found Florence's birthplace, Villa Columbia, on vacation rentals by owner. It's $964 a night <laughs> if you want to stay there. <laughs> but you do get access to the swimming pool next door. So that's good. Oh, that is good. And it's in Italy. I mean, it's lovely, right? It is. It's actually very pretty. Uh, It was a convent for a while, and then it got remodeled in the 90s. Papa's only sibling, his sister May, married one of Mama's brothers. Not the one she'd been engaged to, actually, for a while, but an alternate brother, which is Shades of Jane Austen. (laughs) Normally, we would not get that into a subject's aunt getting married at all, because who cares? But Aunt May was Papa's heir by the rules of the Nightingale entail. So until Papa had a son, Aunt May was next in line. Well, he had two daughters so far, no sons. So Aunt May and Mama's brother, her husband, had the rights of an heir over Papa's worldly possessions. They had a great interest in what happened to it because it could one day be theirs. That's very uncomfortable. Yeah. This whole family drama is between these two families. It's very, I don't know. There's a whole soap opera in here. The family moved back to England when Flo, as she was called in the family, was about one. So they set out for a two-year vacation. They came back with two little souvenirs, which is one of my very favorite commercials of all time. Have you seen that commercial where the little tiny family is coming in, obviously, to see Daddy at the office, and there's a little baby, and the little girl's like, Disneyland, 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 blah, 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 blah. And then um, all the office people are just smiling at the mom in the elevator, and the little girl goes, this is my little brother. Mommy calls him her little souvenir. (laughs) And the mom's really embarrassed and says, obviously, we had a great time. (laughs) I don't even know what it's a commercial for. So how good of a commercial is it? Well, Papa had a grand house built in the north, his ancestral home called Leehurst. He was satisfied with his choice, but Mama felt socially isolated and above all, freezing cold. You could hear the sounds of the industry. You could smell the smells of things. and. And they were too close to her antagonistic mother-in-law. That might be the main factor. But William loved it. I mean, he had a project. He needed projects. And he just took on rebuilding this house and making it this mansion for his family. And I have a link to a virtual tour of it. So you can go to it sort of, you know, from your desk. Um, And I'll link you up to that. But this place is massive. And he said after it was all done, it was a perfect three-month summer residence and an equally perfect 10-day winter one. (laughs) 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> so freezing cold was true. So he bought the estate of Embley Park in Hampshire, a much more temperate climate, where Mama came into her own as a society hostess. Anyone who was anyone passed through her doors and sat at her well-appointed dinner table. Ada Lovelace. Episode 103. The Duke of Wellington, the hero of our Bronte episode. Elizabeth Blackwell female doctor, the Duke of Devonshire, the best and brightest in politics and society, came through their house. That's exactly what Mama wanted with her life. And it was also near all of her brothers and sisters. So Florence and Parthenope had this big family that they could grow up near, which is delightful, I thought. As an aside, one of Fanny's sisters, Joanna, became Joanna Bonham Carter, who is related to Beckett's dream doppelganger, Helena Barnum Carter. <laughs> I was so excited. Well, you don't see that name. You know, it's unusual. <laughs> well, so the house was full of relatives and there were always long-term family visitors. You remember from Jane Austen, people would say they're going to come stay for a month. Evidently, all the sisters traded children in the same way. Like, I'm going to send you to be brought up with your cousins for six months. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Uh, very, very common. And our Florence ended up being quite close to many of her cousins. I thought of her childhood as being migratory because she would just go from one house to another. And they did spend time out with her grandma Shore, too, out in the moors, which is where Florence really felt at home. When she was very young, she was allowed to play boys' games as well as girls' games. She also had a very analytical mind. And in addition to just hanging out in a treehouse, she would spend time collecting and then analyzing things like leaves and acorns and um, temperature. She would make graphs and charts. Even this early, my own son used to graph his Halloween candy. <laughs> but that's a Montessori thing and not his own. Um, so she was ahead of the curve on that. Another thing she did when she was a child was to keep a journal. But unlike most children's journals, she was keeping a record of her prayers. How long did she pray? Was the prayer answered? If it was, how long until there was an answer? <laughs> Statistically, uh, Florence wasn't at all pleased with the statistics. It was very disappointing and it did not confirm God's existence to her at all. <laughs> Something else she was not very pleased with, although she was quick at lessons, the parents having installed one governess after another. She was quick at lessons, but she hated handwriting. She was supposed to write these sentences. She got to the letter T and wrote, stupid copybook. I do not like it. I never wish to write in it again, and I never will. So she printed for a really long time. Mm, she was not down with cursive. <laughs> She was very fluent in French from a young age because mostly she was exposed to her mother's French maids who spoke French with her. Yep. One of her maids was the daughter of one of Louis XVI's coachmen, and they had fled during the revolution. That's the person you can learn French from, huh? Man, it isn't that tight because Mama, as a child, saw Marie Antoinette eating dinner. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward not that long later, less than a decade, and you've got a coachman's daughter. I'm telling you, the home life of these people would make a long-running television series without much, you know, adding too much to it. Well, the children were expected to draw daily. That really worked with Parthenope. She is a spectacular artist, by the way. They were also supposed to practice piano for an hour a day, read their Bible, be kind to the poor in a lady bountiful kind of way, and work on your embroidery. All these things were seen as equally as important as learning things out of books. 
Now, speaking of governesses, and there were a few, I am not sure what happened here, but around age seven or eight, a governess came that I have to assume at Mama's direction seemed to set out to break Flo's spirits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was all the rote learning that she was demanding. There was a lot of rules and that she made Florence follow, you know, doing things that she didn't like to do. And Florence's reaction was to kind of go in on herself. Her attitude was very depressed. And Miss Christie, that was her name. She just kept up with these lessons and Florence kept going down and down, down emotionally. Well, she also used to shut Florence in a closet when she asked questions. Florence was curious and she was too quick and she let the teacher know how much she knew. I'm sorry, I read tales of abuse from this governess. It wasn't just a strict education or whatever. She used to favor Pop. Pop, of course, often ill and was indulged and... Anyway, her gentleness was appropriate female behavior for the era, right? I mean, Parthenope, witness to everything, wrote much later that this governess changed her sister from an open, friendly person into a guarded one and a shy one. Uh, Mama was mostly away during this whole time period and approved of the, quote, moral correction of her daughter's faults. But did she know what that consisted of? I don't know. She was probably just getting reports from Miss Christie. Well, when Flo was around 10, Papa dismissed all thought of governesses. Miss Christie had gotten married and thus became ineligible for service. And he decided to teach his daughters himself. Uh, had he heard about what was going on? Maybe. I don't know. But he was delighted to realize that both of his daughters were eager and very rewarding students. Now, Papa had all of this education. This was another project for him. He was so excited. He doesn't have a real job. So this is his thing. This is his job. He's going to educate his children. Later in life, Florence said she, for the next seven years, spent her time in, quote, the cultivation of my intellect. Isn't that a difference from Miss Christie? Correct. And Papa um, didn't make them stay at school for 10 hours a day. It was like a four, five-hour program of math geometry, geography, and history, which were Papa's favorites. And evidently, he had a gift for teaching those in a very story-like manner that made them very interesting. Um, good for him. Science, Latin, Greek, literature, philosophy. See, that's something else. You don't want your female children able to argue with you. But he was teaching them how to argue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how to think about the world in a different way. So good for him. They ended up, these two girls, equally, if not better educated than the average Etonian or upper crust gentleman of the day. And she knew it, too. She knew that she and her sister were the intellectual equals of any man that came to their house. By the end of her education, she was fluent in Latin, Greek, French, Italian, and later in life, she taught herself German. But she said she just could talk it. She couldn't write it fluently. I think the best thing that came out of this, besides this spectacular education that they got, as soon as Miss Christie was dismissed and Papa took over, Florence's moods improved dramatically. So she was able to come out of that. As opposed to her invalid sister, Florence was widely considered to be a beauty. She was also robust in health. Florence rode out with the hunt, like Lady Mary in Downton Abbey. She nursed the poor in the village. She was outwardly a proper young lady of substance, except for all of that intelligence in her head, which was a flaw, evidently. <laughs> and I'm not sure where these came from. She started in her teens... 
to do what she called dreaming, which is almost like a fugue state. And I'm reminded of the movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Highly recommend, by the way. This man with a boring job and a humdrum life goes on amazing adventures, but only in his mind. And that's as far as I'm going to go without spoiler alerts. <laughs> so that's kind of what happened to Florence too. She would live these dreams of future life or how life could be, or if only she were a boy or whatever she dreamed, we don't know. But the problem was she didn't do it while she was sleeping or while she was in bed. She would just be sitting there embroidering and then suddenly stop. And everyone in the room's like, what is happening? And also around the age of 16, around the same age, these, quote, dreams started to happen. Florence became convinced that she had heard God speaking to her out in the yard and that he demanded that she serve him. But she kept that part all inside for now because no one would understand that. We had talked about Mary Seacole treating her dolls. Florence did the same thing. A lot of little girls do the same thing. But what else Florence did is one day she came across a dog who was being pelted by some really cruel boys, so much so that the dog's foot was broken. The farmer that owned him said, I'm just going to put him down by hanging, which seems harsh. He was going to hang the dog. And Florence said, no, no, no. She and a family friend who happened to be walking by also convinced the farmer to let Florence take care of the dog to wrap his injuries and reduce the swelling. And the dog sprang back to life and she saved the dog. Now, later in life, there's stories about this dog running happily on his three legs. So how saved she got him, I'm not sure. But this is a very famous Florence Nightingale story. All right. Well, let's let that percolate while Papa takes all of us on a grand tour of Europe. Over and over, I see this happening with Florence. She loved something, then thought, oh no, that's indulgent. That's sinful. I must deny myself. She even thanked God for a sore throat that prevented her from unwise exercise of her voice after she was inspired at the opera. She was obsessed with something or someone and then suddenly started dreading it or hating it. It was very interesting emo-type behavior. They met in Paris a sophisticated society hostess named Mary Clark, who became one of Florence's closest friends, mostly via correspondence. But Mary Clark had written to Florence, and I quote, I wish I could be a man, live in the public eye, work on the public good, and have a busy life instead of sitting by the fireside just imagining. It got Florence thinking, because that's she's not alone in her feeling that she wanted to be useful. Well, like other women of her social class, Florence was presented to the queen. In this case, Queen Victoria, who was just about her own age and had a spectacularly successful debutante season. No mother could ask for more of a success than Florence. Florence could handle a room only if she had a mind to, though. But it was a chore rather than a delight to her, you know, an expected thing one did, like paying calls or receiving visitors or getting married. <laughs> yes, because she came out that meant that officially she was on the market. The narrator says Florence does not want to be on the market at all. Well, luckily, if you're reluctant, Unitarians of the day didn't typically get married until their mid-20s. All right. So modern. Unluckily, though, her family seems to have picked out her future husband, her first cousin, Henry Nicholson. Well, the queen was engaged to her own cousin, lest we forget. <laughs> well, meanwhile, Florence continued to impress the high and the mighty. Her progressive father brought her in contact with most of the famous liberal politicians in Britain. 
reformers, advocates for social change, many of whom had educated, intelligent wives and daughters, and were impressed rather than repelled at Florence's conversation at dinner. Though, of course, women might have private influence, things one says at a dinner party, but no public power whatsoever. Honestly, though, she had no private power either. Florence had to ask permission to go anywhere have a chaperone at all times. You know the remedy for that, Florence, surely. Get married. But then you have to ask your husband's permission. There was a lot of pressure building about Florence getting married. Cousin Henry, heir to the fanciest branch of the family, had been a best friend since childhood. A good friend ever since. He formally asked for her hand in marriage when Florence was 23 or 24. It was considered a done deal by everyone. He wasn't even nervous, you know what I mean? And imagine the ripples of dissatisfaction and anger when Florence absolutely, and in no certain terms, and no take-backsies, like she cut it off, rejected his offer of marriage. And of course, because this family is very dramatic, this caused a huge rift in their family that would take years and years to repair. Well, it would have been, on her side, insurance for her mother and sister. Here's the bad thing about this entail. If Papa died, let's say when he died... Everything went to Aunt May. The houses, the furniture, the very art on the walls, the sheets on the beds, the silverware downstairs, everything becomes Aunt May's. And the survivors in the family have just personal possessions. Think of your family, Florence. Like, how dare you make this breach in the family? Who do you think you are? You know, that kind of thing. There was so much pressure, especially for someone who had been brought up to be steeped in, I guess, duty, self-sacrifice, especially her her religion valued self-sacrifice. And this is just... (sighs) It's a sacrifice she just couldn't make. Yeah, it's big. And she wanted to express these virtues of self-sacrifice in a different way, she thought. She kept it all inside for now, but she had discovered her life's work nursing. She was at her happiest at the country house taking care of the mill workers or farmers who fell ill, minding old retainers when they got sick, easing suffering for the weak in her neighborhood. You know, another thing that she was doing when she was treating the villagers is she was keeping track of everything. She was keeping track of who got sick with what, what family members got sick at the same time. It was all recorded. She loved to keep these facts down and compare them and look at them and say, what did these show me? If she'd been a Catholic, this would be the absolute place where Florence takes vows and becomes a nun. Mm-hmm. Orders of Sisters of Charity doing hospital work have a long and respectable history going back to the Middle Ages, but not possible for a devout Protestant woman of good family. Not even a Unitarian. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Hospital nurses were, quote, known to be morally suspect. Drunkards, most of them. They were the bottom of the respectability barrel. Florence was afraid to even hint at the deepest wish of her heart to her family, who was still reeling after that betrayal with Cousin Henry. So she did some research in the background, activated the network, wrote letters. Is there anywhere in the world a person such as myself can be useful in this way? Without the internet, you're going to have to send letters. (laughs) She did get an answer from a friend in another country. It would be unusual, Miss Nightingale, and in your country... Anything unusual is thought unsuitable, but if you decide you have a vocation for that way of life, act upon your inspiration. She decided that was good advice, and she made a deal with a family friend, a doctor, to work for a few months at his hospital in Salisbury. And you would have thought she had got a tattoo on her forehead. (laughs) Papa was so upset, he just left. He peaced out to sleep at his club in London. He couldn't handle looking at his daughter. 
where also he did not have to hear the fighting at home. Mama's position is one carries blankets and bread to the poor, one attends concerts to benefited charity, one endows village schools, Florence, but one does not wade in filth and disease or hear language or see parts of bodies or worse, fall into some kind of immorality of your own or get sick. You're doing this to spite us. You're doing this to embarrass me. Mama was beside herself. <laughs> Parthenope took to her bed, which is her classic response to any stressor whatsoever. The, shall we say, epically negative response to Florence's plan, however tentative that it was, put a sudden halt to her bid to make her own life. She'd even researched a neighboring cottage she could rent. She had everything set up, all for nothing. She, she bowed to family pressure and wrote rather dramatically, No advantage that I can see comes of my living on. You may laugh at my plan, but no one but the mother of it knows how precious an infant idea becomes. I shall never do anything. I am worse than dust or nothing. Zola, the wedding company that will do anything for love, is reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience, making the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. From engagement to wedding to decorating your first home together, Zola will be there, combining compassionate customer service with modern tools and technology. I wish Zola had been around 28 years ago when I was getting married. I was Xeroxing off newsletters and mailing them to everybody that was coming to our wedding. You don't have to do it that way. You can use Zola. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites and the easiest wedding registry. So your guests can get wedding information and buy gifts all in one convenient place. You can even order your thank you notes. To build your free wedding website on Zola and get $50 towards your registry, Go to Zola.com slash chicks to get started today. That's right. You can build a free wedding website on Zola and get $50 towards your registry by going to Zola. That's Z-O-L-A dot com slash chicks, C-H-I-C-K-S, to get started today. So Florence began again, outwardly dutiful, outwardly social. She did have that indefinable something which made people like her. She had the magnetismo if she wanted to turn it on. She decided to get into mesmerism a little bit, which is what we would now call being a hypnotist. One time she was practicing on a bear and her male friend is like, uh, no. <laughs> it is not working. Also, let me grab the back of your dress. Back away right now, please. More seriously, she studied subjects like international health, but only in secret. And while they were in London, she managed to sneak in a part-time stint at a spine hospital as a nurse. Maybe a um, specialist hospital <laughs> was better than some kind of general hospital, or maybe her parents thought she was paying calls. That's probably more likely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She also looked around to try and find a place where she could get more training. Not only were the Catholic nuns being trained as nurses, but there were some Protestant groups. There was a Protestant group in Kaiserwerth, Germany. There were deaconesses and they had a nurses training program. And she kind of set her sights on that. It kind of was in the back of her mind. How am I going to get there? 
what do I have to do? And she'd bring it up in conversation and her parents, you know, just shut her down. Can I know? Can I know? No. It went on for years. Shouldn't a woman's desire to help society be as valued as that of a man's? If it's a command from God, Papa's basically like, I hear you, but that's not the world you live in. That was his basic response. I know that we could play the small violin, this woman drowning in silk and free time and money, but Papa purposely held the purse strings. He did not trust her decision-making abilities. You hand her an allowance and what's she going to do? She's going to go off to Kaiserworth and embarrass the family. He kept her dependent on family wishes. He dismissed her deep desires to be useful as unnecessarily ridiculous. You're living the ideal life, Florence. Why must you be so ungrateful? She was always free to buy a hat, but not all this pretending to work. Really. You know, supervise the linen rotation downstairs if you need to organize something. Make jam if you want to be useful. All this jam we've been making. I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, during visits to family friends, Mama and Papa still had eyes on her, usually in the form of her maid, sent along with, with nothing to do but tattletale on the way back. She, um, by the way, had had another serious suitor this whole time, a member of parliament named Richard Monkton Miles, also an idealist also a reformer. Close friend, actually, to Elizabeth Gaskell, the famous writer. He respected Florence's intellect. He was a great friend. But here seems to be her view on the subject as she was becoming aware of how serious his attentions were. Please, God, send me gray hairs so all this sort of attention will cease. She's 27. (laughs) And that won't do the trick. Gray hairs don't put the right kind of man off anyway. Well, he stayed devoted for almost a decade. More on him later. (laughs) Yeah. A slightly older married friend named Selena Bracebridge invited Florence to go with her and her husband to Rome. But this is the way she marketed it. I need Florence to ease my way. I'm in such poor health and so is my husband. We could really use the attentions of a healthy young person who knew the deal with Flo's parents. (laughs) My son has friends with very strict parents who have me call the parents to ask things. See, people know. People know how to work the deal. Your friends know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So off she went, and she did like the art. She actually lay on the floor of the Sistine Chapel to catch a better view of the art. Can you still do that? I just wonder how unusual that is. Do people usually lay on the floor of the Sistine Chapel? I bet you they do. I would. Wouldn't you? Well, I guess, but I just think, wow, okay. That seemed interesting to me. And the connections of her hosts were epic in town. I mean, she met the Pope several times. But what she loved the most of this whole trip to Rome was being treated for once like an adult human being. She wrote in her diary how amazing it was to be with people who didn't regard her dreams as nonsense, who would listen to her and make suggestions instead of telling her to be grateful for her elevated position. She made the mistake, this is how bad it is, of writing home once about how beautiful the fountains of Rome were in the moonlight, and she got a freaked out letter back from home about, is no one watching you? (laughs) Like, I am 27 years old. It's a good thing there wasn't Instagram back then because they would have been, you know, contacting her all the time. Where are you? Where are your chaperones? Why are you alone? (laughs) They would be contacting the consulate every five minutes if they knew. (laughs) Trying to get a hold of the Pope. Have you seen Florence? (laughs) (laughs) Well, guess what? I didn't write to you, Mama and Papa. I am now sponsoring a little Roman girl through school with money from my dress allowance. Yes, she did. She paid for a little girl's schooling the whole time. And I'm now friends with a mother superior who let me make a retreat at her convent for a couple of weeks. See how far she falls off the rails without a chaperone? Just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) 
I would have thought her parents would be all over that. Her mother was instrumental in setting up a school in the village near Leahurst. She even hired the teacher herself, paying him. This is her mother. This is when Florence was growing up. So I would think that they would be proud of that particular use of her funds. No, 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 no. no. Go back to one endows schools. One does not put a little Roman child through school. That is a line too far. I would not be able to figure out where the lines were. I'm with Florence on this one. (laughs) Well, the thing is, Florence knew where the lines were, but she chose not to regard them. (laughs) She came back to London to an ultimatum. Mr. Milnes wanted an answer. He wanted a wife and children and either wanted a yes or his walking papers. It had been a decade. (laughs) He needed, you know, to make a choice. And Florence, she'd been saying this for the past nine years of their friendship, said, no, thank you. And he immediately went away and married someone else. I wondered if he had them both going on at the same time. You know, after so many years of her saying, I'm not going to marry you, I'm not going to marry you, you'd think that he would find somebody else, you know, as a plan B. A lot of these aristocratic marriages were not love matches anyway. So the fact that an attractive member of parliament offered for your daughter, sign that up. We'll arrange. It wasn't a matter of, I don't know how she feels about you. Like, didn't matter. No. Well, this news of yet another rejected proposal sent Mama into a tailspin of panic. Again, why won't you marry and spare us the worry about the entail? Aunt May now had a son. She was cemented in. She was going to inherit everything. You could have saved us and you didn't. Why do you have to be so unconventional? Well, how about this for unconventional? The Bracebridges wanted Florence to go with them to Egypt. Whoa. Sign me up. (laughs) Was dangerous enough for men to go there. Evidently, the ruler there for the past few decades had tried to smooth the way for European tourism. Like if somebody's suitcase got stolen, every man in that village was murdered. Like that's no joke. For women, so scary to think about. Would Mr. Bracebridge be up to the job of surveillance? And I honestly can't believe this, but Papa agreed to let her go. Though Flo had to take a maid who was appropriately named Trout. (laughs) who had to sleep in her room and go with her everywhere. I wonder if Florence had just continued with the whole Kaiserworth thing, you know, and just gotten them to a point where they were worn down. I do believe that they were concerned about her um, committing suicide, and that might have been part of why they let her go. Mm. It seems like everyone in that house is on a hair trigger, except for Papa, who just leaves. When he gets too stressed, he just leaves and goes hang out with menfolk in the club. Mm -hmm. Because he can. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, we don't necessarily have to describe Florence's travels to you because Parthenope did us a favor. And Parthenope, this is the only favor she'll ever do for us. Just kidding. Parthenope published all of her sister's letters back from Egypt in a little book. Let's just say Florence had many adventures. She wandered into a mosque and her guards had to pull a whip on people to prevent them from attacking her. She called the pyramids, quote, repulsive and uninteresting. Though she did get hoisted to the top of the big one with ropes and pulleys. That's exciting. got to see the view. They don't let you do that anymore. And she went inside. You don't get to do that anymore, although they won't let you wear shoes. So here she is, (laughs) a respectable Victorian woman after three hours underground, covered in cobwebs and dirt with no shoes. And um, they like to wear these kind of house dress things because they, who were they impressing? And she really looked like something else. When she came out, the Egyptian women kind of recoiled from her and she felt like, whoa, I'm sort of humiliated right now. (laughs) (laughs) What else? Um, She referred to Cleopatra as that disgusting Cleopatra. 
which proves she's never heard our episode 46. (laughs) But in general, she was a very enthusiastic and vivid travel writer, if prejudiced against what she calls the Mahometans. I love that she was almost rewriting the travel guide that they had. She was a very good writer, obviously, because Parthenope printed her letters. As part of the trip, they had gone to Athens, and she saw some boys playing with something that was fluffy and white. And she interrupted them to find out what they were playing with. And it was an owlet, a little teeny tiny owlet that Florence saved, put in her pocket, (laughs) named it Athena. It's a family tradition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And carried it everywhere with her. Charming. My whole favorite part, also uh, animal related, is where she tricks the bugs at night in like three different ways before she goes to bed. (laughs) She opens the door and sets the light outside the door and acts like she's walking out the door and some of them go to the light and then she snatches the light and slams the door. And then she walks over and acts like she's writing. So they think, like she personifies them, they think that she's not yet ready for bed. Oh, ho, she's tricking them. She leaves all of a sudden and runs hell for leather for the mosquito net while they're hanging around like biting their fingernails over near the desk, planning their attack. Ha ha. And she wrote all about how funny that was, how she never got bit because she outsmarted the mugs. As this tripper was progressing, Mr. Bracebridge's health was kind of deteriorating and it was recommended that he go to Germany. He needed to take the waters. He needed some hydrotherapy. Fantastic. Let's go to Germany. What else is in Germany? She is like within spitting distance of the Kaiserwerth Institute. She could go there. And she did. She wrote her parents a letter and then slow mailed it and just went. She had two weeks there. She stayed with the deaconesses. There were 116 of them. She worked alongside of them in all of the departments, from children to adults, men and women, and it was life-changing. This place, very like her ideal workplace from her dreams, functionally a hospital run by an order of respectable women who were not nuns. This is what I want to do. This is what I had hoped existed. She had sent away her maid. So for the first time in her life, she had to do her own hair. She was 30 years of age and had never done her hair before and she had never slept in a room by herself before. That's exciting. Uh, She wrote what would be her first published piece. It was a pamphlet entitled The Institution of Kaiserwerth on the Rhine for the Practical Training of Deaconesses. For a while, no one knew that she had written it. But when she got home, all the inspiration from Germany was percolating. The family's at the country house. So the best scheme she could set up was a night school for factory girls in the mills and mines nearby. And since her debutante year, Florence had been involved in some level with education, teaching street children in London or village children in the country. But this was something she put her whole heart into while the hospital scheme was kind of coalescing in her head. Like her father, She was rewarded by the energy that her students brought to the project. Her students, who had already worked a 12-hour shift by the time they even got to school, and she taught with humor and with faith in the students' intelligence, even though they were lower class, their lives had worth, which was a rare enough sentiment from an upper-class woman, and she really endeared herself to the factory girls in her class. She uh, wrote a lot later that this school that she had held when she was about 30 was one of the crowning achievements of her life. And her family resented it heartily. You've been away for months and we hardly see you all day. Why are you late into dinner from that school? Why are you not dressed properly? 
Parthenope expressed herself the way she'd been taught to for her whole life and deployed the invalid privilege of becoming very, very ill. I want to put that in quote, becoming very ill, acting very ill. And then Mama found out about those German field trips. I think the maid probably tattled. Florence had sent a letter saying, I, I'm having a great time. Uh, I'm going on the train. going to go to be a nurse. Bye. <laughs> so maybe that letter finally got there and Mama just flipped her stuff. Well, she demanded that Florence stop that school, all of this ridiculous nonsense. And if you're so interested in nursing, come nurse your sister, which is your duty. So Flo's resentment started to leak out. I don't know how it couldn't. In her letters to family and friends, Papa was painted as a nice guy who'd done nothing with his life but mope around. Mama as interested only in social climbing, and her sister Pop is a spoiled invalid. And she told her parents how much she'd admired the Catholic institutions and their occupants during her travels, and she was met with slammed doors and anger. All of those bracelets and earrings and necklaces that she had brought Parthenope from Egypt, Parthenope threw them in her face. Yeah. Why is this family like this? And then Florence passed out. So I don't know if Florence is doing her own, you know, overly dramatic thing involved. These These are some big fights that they're having about this. And there was a woman that Florence had met. She sure didn't help her parents' case at all. It was Elizabeth Blackwell. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman to receive a medical degree in the United States. She was British. She knew the family, and she was staying with them. Florence and Elizabeth were the same age, and they both shared this desire to become medical professionals, career women that were not dependent on men to support them. So Elizabeth stayed at Embley, and Florence and her had this really fantastic time. They'd go to a local hospital and tour around, and they'd talk about how Florence could become a nurse, how she could go on to Kaiserwerth. When Elizabeth Blackwell set sail for America, they did remain in touch for many years. But I can just imagine that meeting this woman that was her own age and doing the same thing that she wanted to do had to have such an impact on her. I do not know if Elizabeth Blackwell and her influence worked on Papa because Papa's mind started to change a little. He concocted a plan. Oh, poor Parthenope would benefit from taking the waters in Germany. Mama and Flo, why don't you go with her? All joyfully received by Parthenope until she found out that Florence had been given permission to go back to the Kaiserwerth Hospital while they were there. And Papa had arranged for Flo to have a three-month stay there. Parthenope flew into a rage. What is the deal with this? I don't get Parthenope at all. And she now no longer wanted to go at all. If Florence was going to go to Kaiserwerth, then forget it. And so Florence was like, well, I will go. You can stay here if you want. And Mama wanted Flo to not go because it upset her sister. But Florence finally just put her foot down. I will go. You may go. The end. You don't think I'm going to sit here dangling about my mother's drawing room for my whole life. I am going out to work. So she's finally getting a little backbone. Florence got her way and they did go. They got to Germany and at the age of 31, Florence put on the uniform of a deaconess and entered that three-month training program that she wanted for so many years at Kaiserwerth. She was able to work in all the units and spend time there. She was able to get the lessons that all the other deaconesses had that she hadn't been able to do in that little two-week stint. There was, of course, it was a religious institution, although it was Protestant. 
So there was twice daily church services that she went to. She also fundraised for the Institute. One of the biographies I read put it as, quote, begging and selling lottery tickets. So here's <laughs> she's begging and selling lottery tickets in the village to raise money. She was able to take part in her first amputation. She learned general hygiene protocols. She held patients' hands and dressed wounds. <laughs> she applied leeches and did cuppings and sat with patients as they breathed their last breath. Oh, my goodness. It's not my dream. <laughs> no. But it was Florence's dream. And on the sidelines, in the background, Parthenope found that her usual tactics were not working. And she got progressively worse in health, almost to the point of death. Which brought Florence scurrying back, as intended. Seeing Florence made Parthenope all better instantly. I mean, she snapped into perfect health. And Parthenope's doctor was immediately angry and suspicious and said to Florence, your sister will never get well if you live in the same house. I'll tell your father. Yeah, like you cannot let her manipulate you anymore. And he had words with Parthenope's father and William finally agreed, okay, I'll, I'll find a place for her in the country. I, I, I do realize that she's a pernicious influence on Florence. She's holding her back. She's disarraying her mind, etc. Parthenope wrote about her sister, sour grapes-like, I believe she has little or none of what is called charity or philanthropy. She's only ambitious, very and would like very well to regenerate the world with a grand course of action, some fine institution, which is a very different thing. Here she has a circle of admirers who cry up everything she does or says as gospel. I think it will do her much good to be with you. Even though you love and admire her, you do not believe in the wisdom of all she says just because she says it. <laughs> what happened to them in childhood? I don't know. I don't know. They were kept apart by parental design quite often, you know, in that migratory childhood. The parents just didn't want them in the same place at the same time all the time. So maybe maybe they were just trying to, you know, get their parents' attention all the time. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Well, one of the books had some kind of motivation. None of this seems very healthy. That Parthenope was the one that wanted to be social and admired and have lots of proposals and have a husband and children and be presented. And she loved that life. But her condition of health and her plainness of face, perhaps, made it not possible for her. Whereas Florence had all of the things that Parthenope dreamed about without even trying for them and then threw them away. Florence, Florence, Florence. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It reminds me of yep. Jan and Marsha. Yeah. But this whole thing was the break Florence needed. Over the course of her tours of hospitals, she had realized that no one was performing the job of nursing to the level which she thought possible, not even the deaconesses. Oh, that's saying something. Her plan then became to take charge of a hospital, some hospital, and revolutionize nursing into a real and honorable profession. She would train respectable nurses who would go out and train others and gradually change the world. That's, that is a grand plan. <laughs> That's her big plan. And then on the side, she's still doing these little statistics projects. For instance, she had compiled the statistics from the last census to try and find out if there was any medical issues that could be seen in those statistics. 
you know, just for funsies. And then she sent out a questionnaire to hospital administrators all over Europe to answer questions so she could compile some more data points. Although kind of like any survey where the results are not anonymous, everyone tried to make themselves look really good. Mm -hmm. So the results of that particular survey are tainted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, these are her early ones. So I think um, she's learning as she's going along. There's no Deaconess Statistics School. (laughs) That is true. Well, she got what she wanted. She began at the Institute for Sick gentlewomen in London, the place where governesses that were under the weather might go, where the deal was this. I'll accept no salary and I will provide a housekeeper to serve as my chaperone at my own expense. She was 31, just saying. <laughs> I'll live on the premises, and but I must be in charge. She wanted to go around with the doctors and write down what they were saying so that she could give proper care to all the patients based on what the doctors were saying. She didn't want to operate independently. She wanted to operate in tandem with the doctors. The whole thing was a great offer. It was sweetened by the fact that her father agreed to pay her an allowance of 500 pounds a year. I'm so bad at figuring out how much these are worth. Did you do that? I did because you just go to futureboy.us and he has a historical currency converter. It's $65,000 a year. Okay, thank you. So people thought this was kind of unwomanly and weird, and she almost didn't make it in. The women on the committee were very concerned about what her family thought of this, and Papa had to write her a note of permission before they would allow her to do this. She had connections on this committee. These women that were in charge of the management of the hospital that were on her side and Florence called these other women that were just naysayers, respectable asses or old cats. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she might not know any other words, but that's what she meant is the B word. That's <laughs> so she decided upon looking around her new responsibility that household management had been neglected and that had to be first. Let's clean everything. Okay, then we're going to move on to new soft goods like sheets and curtains that were just full of dirt and disease. We're going to install a dumbwaiter. We have one in here in this house. Ours is no longer functional, but it would have been very useful. Um, negotiate with local vendors for bulk prices on food and cleaning supplies instead of doing this whole, oh no, we need a pot of jam, jam again, going to the store and getting a pot of jam. No, no, no. We're going to have months of supply on hand and we're going to get a deal. She brought down costs enormously. The hospital that she was taking over had, of course, had to have some uh, construction done to meet her standards. There was room for 27 patients, although while she was there, that never reached that much. And she even used her own allowance to buy things. Her very first allowance, she bought books for a small library at the hospital. She bought commode pails and she bought herself what she saw as her uniform, a black silk dress, one in black and one in gray. That was her first allowance. She's not even using it for herself, for her living. She's using it for her hospital. Well, it was a success. Within six months, she had that place in ship shape and she was looking around for another challenge. She did not like the maintenance. She liked the reclamation, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> My husband says the same thing. He likes setting up the new restaurants, but he doesn't like operating them once they're <laughs> open. She did have a staff of nurses, but when they didn't meet her standards of cleanliness or efficiency, she would dismiss them. One of them she dismissed on the grounds of, quote, on account of her love of opium and intimidation. You think? <laughs> I'm kidding. 
That's what I look for in a nurse is opium and intimidation. That's right. That's right. Well, it was hard to find nurses. So, Well, luckily, question mark, a cholera epidemic broke out and Florence had more work than she could contend with. No one knew how to fix it. We talked about this during our Mary Seacole episode. Florence convinced herself that she was immune to cholera, which was weird. <laughs> but if you didn't drink unboiled water... You were usually fine. Tea drinkers were safer. And of course, she didn't catch it and was convinced by that, that it was a message of approval from God. Even though she was able to make people comfortable during the cholera epidemic, I think maybe the greatest personal achievement she got was that she got her mother and her sister to help out at the Institute. Fanny began to do what she used to do for the villagers and the thing that she wanted Florence to do, you know, sending books and fruit and food. Whatever she felt that they needed, Fanny made sure that they got it. That's saying, okay, I kind of agree with what you're doing. But nevertheless, I'm going to stay over here. <laughs> in my lane. <laughs> you know what? That's progress. That is progress. Yes, I think so too. The Crimean War broke out. We talked about the causes of that, such as they were uh, in the Mary Seacole episode. But the word went out that the soldiers were being left to die and to starve for lack of care. And this news began to reach an appalled public back in Britain. These were their sons. These were their brothers and their friends. And Florence began a letter writing campaign to anyone she could think of that she knew in government to be allowed to go help. At the same time, one of her government friends was already putting in motion his own proposal involving Florence Nightingale. Sidney Herbert, Minister of War, did she not have friends in high places, <laughs> had been listening to Florence's passionate desire to work in reforming nursing for over a decade now. He and all his reform colleagues had heard all about it at every dinner party they'd ever went to. So he started to fire his colleagues up about this. Do I have the person for this job? And she got it. Florence was given the title Office of Superintendent of the Female Nursing Establishment in the English General Military Hospitals in Turkey. Wow, you did that in one breath. That's impressive. <laughs> they had these like parallel conversations going on. She had one idea. He had this bigger idea. She thought she would just go herself, you know, take maybe one other person with her. Just go and do what she could in the uh, war zone hospitals. And this is like a huge change. But she was like, OK. Let's do it. These were not the first nurses to go to war. The French had Sisters of Charity nurses that were staffing their hospitals. So, of course, the British could do the same thing. It wasn't the first trained nurses to hit the war. She was to assemble a group of nurses and train them and be responsible for their behavior and obey orders. She was part of the military now. Newspaper articles began to be printed. Whoa, who is this person? She's come out of nowhere. An angel, as far as the popular press was concerned, a young, graceful, feminine, rich, and popular lady who is one of England's proudest and purest daughters, sacrificing her comfort and her life, maybe, for queen and country. You know, this is the point where we begin to see that halo forming around her head when people <laughs> looked at her. She hasn't even done anything yet. She's actually worried that she's not going to be able to put together this group of 40 that Sidney Herbert was asking for. But she kind of cast her net wide as far as religion goes. And she went to the Catholics and the Protestants. She got in touch with a nursing school, the Fry Institute, and also Kaiserworth. I suppose that was probably the first one. But she wanted them to send qualified nurses so she could fill these 40 positions. She had hardly got the time to put these nurses together in the first place. She had a committee to help her. Too young, you're fired. Too pretty, nope. <laughs> we don't want any of that. Do you show up drunk? 
seems like a low bar. <laughs> Are you going to find a husband? Hmm. <laughs> Are you going to evangelize? Is that the only reason that you're going? There's a lot of questions that they had that weeded out a lot of these women. One of the other questions is, you know, would you wear this unflattering wool dress, this white apron and white cap? One of the women who was accepted said that she was willing to do anything. But if she had known about the ugly cap, she wouldn't have come. <laughs> That's how bad it was. That's funny. Well, there was a history of sexual harassment and they wanted to try to ward it off. Mm -hmm. And they wanted them to be comfortable. Florence knew that they were going to be moving around. So they needed some, they needed more of their yoga wear. <laughs> That's true. Well, ultimately, the women who did end up departing with Florence broadly fell into two camps. Members of religious orders who Florence was afraid were going to proselytize once they got there. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers at this point, or sort of career nurses thought to be loose in morals with both patients and doctors and who would have to be kept from strong drink. Like they were going to see this as a paid adventure. On the way over to Turkey, those two groups wouldn't even sit with each other. They were of two totally different social classes. She put this group together in 11 days, and I imagine them getting on this boat. And the beginning of Survivor kind of came to mind. And all I could think of was 11 days, 38 nurses, thousands of ill and wounded soldiers, and one, Florence Nightingale. When I got married, high tech was VHS. Now I can't even show that tape to my kids. I don't have a VCR. Those kids, I wouldn't be able to show them their baby videos either for the same reason without Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the world's largest, most trusted digitizer of home movies and photos. When I was a kid, all of our baby pictures were on slides and that box of slides got destroyed. You can ensure your family history is preserved forever. Legacy Box is a mail-in service. You just simply fill your legacy box with old movies and pictures, and they'll do the rest, professionally digitizing your moments onto a thumb drive, a digital download, or a DVD. And there's never been a better time to digitally preserve your family's memories. Visit LegacyBox.com today to get started. Plus, for a limited time, they are offering our listeners an exclusive discount. Go to LegacyBox.com slash chicks to get 40% off your first order. That's LegacyBox.com slash chicks, C-H-I-C-K-S, to save 40% and get started preserving your past today. So Florence and company are setting out for their grand adventure. Florence actually brought a lot of her own supplies from home and her Egyptian travel friends, the Bracebridges. Also a housekeeper, a very organized and hardworking person who Florence relied on and um, turned out to be quite an asset. That kind of surprised me that the Bracebridges were signing on for this project. We talked about in the Mary Seacole episode where civilians just watched the war. I mean, I guess they're helping out, which is better than sitting on a hill watching people fight. These are early adopters to travel to Egypt, though. So that's true. 
I, I don't even, if moon travel had been possible, they would have gone there too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad they found each other. <laughs> Me too. The group did stop in France to provision even farther. They got some canned food and clothing, linens. They got a lot of linens, cooking stoves, bed stands, anything that Florence could predict that they would need. They put them all on the ship. Everybody got on board and sailed off for Constantinople. Except Florence isn't a very good sailor. <laughs> a lot of the women were just laying in their berths, just trying not to move as they were seasick the entire way. I feel so bad because that's the worst place to go is down below. You got to go on the deck and get the fresh air and look at the horizon. Throw up along the side instead of on yourself. <laughs> There's something about the fresh air, though. As a sad aside, just as Florence was leaving Parthe discovered that Athena had died. She had gone into her bedroom early in the morning. Athena was there. She came back. Athena was just dead. The family didn't have the heart to tell Florence. So they took, they took Athena to the taxidermist and hoped she'd be surprised when she came home. I'm not sure. That's just so sad. It's like the end of that chapter. They say when Hedwig the Owl dies in Harry Potter that that's the official end of his childhood. So I wonder, you know, here's the symbolism again. An mm -hmm. owl companion dies right at the moment where Florence is stepping into the world as an adult woman. The group arrived at the hospital and the conditions were... Beyond description, almost horrifying. Rats running everywhere, taking bites out of men lying on the floor. There were flies everywhere, lice, raw sewage leaking from the latrines all over the floors. The smell was unbelievable. They just, you know, that initial shock kind of threw them back a little bit. They were assigned a suite of rooms to be the women's quarters, uh, ended up being kind of two large dorm rooms, a storeroom in the middle, a little office, some spare little tiny upstairs rooms for a few to use as dormitories. What was kind of surprising to them, too, is it wasn't like a hospital. It was an army barracks that was turned into a hospital. So it was already behind on being a hospital when it opened up. I don't think anything that Florence could have planned ahead would have told her that there would be a rotting horse that was contaminating the water supply. And there were no operating tables anywhere on the premises at all. Florence sent Mr. Bracebridge out for more supplies. Food for her people was going to be hard to come by, and she was going to have to see to that herself. That is shocking. The most shocking thing of all to me was the doctors did not want these women anywhere near the patients. From their rooms, the nurses could hear men weeping and crying for help and water, and they were not allowed to step foot out of their quarters. From the doctor's perspective, these nurses were nothing but spies. They'd read the newspaper articles about these lady do-gooders who wanted to be all up in their faces now and report back how the doctors sucked and were failing, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, Miss <laughs> Nightingale herself could go observe the cholera ward if she wanted to, because the doctors were not about to go in there. There's no point. These men have cholera. There's nothing we can do for that. They are in isolation. That is what we do for them is keep them away from everyone else. Now, what Florence wanted for her nurses was to take their orders from the doctors. So she had no choice but to just sit and wait. You know, they did as much as they could while they were waiting, but they couldn't do any of the big stuff. Instead, they set up their portable stoves, they made soup, they mended linen. 
It took an emergency to break the deadlock. The hospital was suddenly inundated with wounded from a battle, and it really became an all-hands-on-deck situation. They just emerged without permission and began to help. Florence first set up a triage system as the soldiers were coming in so she could point where they should go for their care. What soldier needed the most, you know, you know, triage. We've all watched MASH. We've all watched Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Handle what is in front of you. Make choices. Appallingly, as far as the doctors were concerned, and the army, and society, frankly, the nurses helped the worst off first, rather than treating them according to rank. Something you recall that determined who got into the lifeboats on the Titanic. Entrenched hierarchy. Florence said, in response to any criticism, any officer who doesn't like it can do without care at all. Yes, ma'am. Florence began to notice that if a soldier came in with actual battle wounds, the doctors would jump too to make an effort. But 10 times more were coming in sick and the hospital was just not working. What it did was act like a sick man warehouse. Just keep them away from any healthy people and that's all they can do. Florence thought, secretly, question mark, just like me, unsecretly, that 19th century medicine as performed by doctors was about as useful as nothing. People nursed at home by loving relatives had a better chance of surviving. So how do we translate that home care to this environment? So she decided, just like she had with the governess's hospital, to start from the beginning. The domestic chores that the doctors were, quote, above, that made things more comfortable for everyone. So she started with laundry, sheets, towels, clothes even, basins. There was one green pail for a long time and it got lost and the nurses actually cried over it. It was the only thing they could use to carry water or dinners to people. That is really one green pail is all they had until Mr. Bracebridge and his man went out into Constantinople and raided the marketplace for any containers at all. Soap, food, no one was feeding the wounded. The orderlies were famous for eating people's rations. And so the storehouse kitchen began to operate and nourishing soup came out of it. So that's the housekeeper right there making that happen. Cups and knives and forks they didn't even have. Everyone was issued them as regulation equipment, but the men were to be responsible for their own stuff. And if you left your backpack behind after you got shot, that's on you. I guess you don't have a cup. I mean, that's rough. It's very rough, but Florence kind of rolled with all of it. She got on the staff. She told them what to do. She ordered supplies as she could. She got into an extreme organization mode. She went around and numbered all the beds, separated them a bit so that there would be a little bit more room for each patient. She developed a system to check in and secure supplies from theft and embezzlement. Mary Seacole had that same theft problem. You'd get a shipment and one side of it, the side out of sight of where you were, got nibbled away by thieves until you ended up with 80% of your stock left. And that happened with Florence Nightingale supplies, too. Often you could buy your own stuff back at the markets in Constantinople if you had a mind to. She had a very critical tool at her disposal. She had a direct line to the Secretary of War, her old pal, Sidney Herbert, who had put her there. So if she could contact him, he could get her money and supplies as quickly as he possibly could. She also had another connection to all those society women back in London, and she mobilized them to send things that weren't necessarily needed, but were wanted, like slippers, more linens, more preserves. 
ginger cookies, little treats that a soldier would remember home that would just make him feel better emotionally. There was a thought by the army that these things should be sold and the money used to buy regular old supplies. But Florence objected and said, if a woman makes socks for a soldier with her own hands and wraps them up lovingly and sends them, how do you think she will feel when she reads in the paper that they were sold on the open marketplace? That is not good for public opinion. Everyone wants to feel useful. This is how everyone can be useful. And it's more important to the men than a little bit of extra rations to know that someone at home is thinking about them. She stepped on toes everywhere and told the truth to the point that the queen herself asked Florence what token she might send. Razors, said Florence, unromantically. (laughs) (laughs) But they needed them and she wanted to get them for her boys. Florence's true genius, I almost think, rather than nursing, was supply chain and organization. And since the army wasn't bothering to provide supplies, she would. She heard about some wounded that were en route and hired local Turkish carpenters to fix up a ward out of a damaged section of the hospital so these men wouldn't have to lay on their filthy ships or on the beach or in the hall. They put new flooring in. They fixed up a burnt up section of the hospital and made a little ward. And rather than be grateful, the hospital administrators and doctors were furious at her. Taking initiative was not you know, how dare she? Who does she think she is? Kind of thing. She didn't care. And the government sent out... Now, see, I don't think it was her requesting it so much as her missives went back to the right people who made decisions to make a sanitation commission to send them out to see what on earth is happening here. They came out and repaired the building. They whitewashed it. They added proper ventilation, although the very first thing they did was break a whole bunch of windows for proper ventilation because the windows wouldn't open. They're already Uh, broken. What are you going to (laughs) do? They fixed the water supply. And her biggest success and where she likely saved the most lives was all her administrative and supply work. Not to mention that intangible. She was a good influence, believe it or not, on the doctors, especially the junior doctors, the orderlies, who were known, speaking of nurses that were opium and violence, the orderlies were known to kick people to get them to shut up. Patients! That's effective. Well, they would shut up because they would be unconscious. But all the other workers and The soldiers, I just don't know if it was the power of shame, the power of there being a good example to look up to, but it really helped a lot just to have that. She was also a good influence on the behavior of the nurses. Um, She had high standards and she wanted them met. And there was no debate about this. And if you didn't like it, there were many boats that you could place yourself upon and go. Yeah. In the first month, a dozen nurses had had enough and they left. There's a high turnover. Of course there is. It's actual work. So all the people that they couldn't weed out before they got there weeded themselves out. She set up a library so that these patients could read. That's something I'm sure they hadn't seen since they were back home. She also gave Parthenope a job. She wanted Parthenope to rally the troops and get the fine ladies of England to send any recreational equipment they could get their hands on. Games, art materials, unfortunately, no electronics. That would have been so helpful. You see a whole (laughs) world full of people playing Candy Crush. That's right. But basically anything that Parthenope could think to send to entertain them, that was a little intangible. That was very valuable to them. Meanwhile, Parthenope and Mama were spreading Florence's heroic work by letter to the high and mighty all over Britain. The average soldier fell in love with this person who 
though he wasn't an officer, gave him soup and had someone cut his hair and make him comfortable and was interested to see if he had a clean pillowcase. You know, mm-hmm. he was not used to being treated that way. And the fact that Florence and Fully half the nurses were, quote, ladies, really meant something in an era when the lady of the manor coming to your, you know, little cottage was a big honor. But her reputation grew back home with articles like this. I'm going to read it to you. We perceived at a great distance a faint light flying from bed to bed like a will-o'-the-wisp flickering in a meadow on a summer's eve, which at last rested upon one spot. But alas, as we approached, we perceived our mistake. A group in the shape of a silhouette unfolded its outline in light shade. As we came nearer and nearer, the picture burst upon us. A dying soldier sat half reclining upon his bed. Life, you could observe, was fast bidding him adieu. Death, that implacable deity, was anxiously waiting for his soul to convey it to its eternal destination, but stopped. Near him was a guardian angel sitting at the foot of his bed and most devotedly engaged in penciling down his last wishes. Everybody, as long as the world lasts, would have understood, felt, and admired her. It's the lady with the lamp. It's if, the lady. You, if you know any single thing about Florence Nightingale, that's how you know her. And people at home ate it up. The proper Victorian feminine self-sacrifice. Eight hours a day. She spent mostly at night when her administrative duties were done in personal attention and care. Soldiers kissed her shadow as she passed them with her lamp. So what you saw was the serene, gliding figure of comfort. What you didn't see was the different camps of nurses fighting like the sharks and the jets, the infuriating insistence on red tape by the government, the political maneuvering by her enemies determined to replace her or besmirch her or at least take her authority away. There was some bad intrigue going on, power struggles. And there were still new nurses coming in. Another group of 46 were sent down. So she was still getting new nurses in, having to train them, as well as dealing with all this bureaucratic managerial work. Into this mix came one Mary Seacole, by the way. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Who came at a bad time, let's just say, and uh, might have been a straw that broke the camel's back. As far as Florence Nightingale could see, Mary Seacole got only the good parts and she ignored the bad parts. Yes, but that's how Mary Seacole operated. She's a whole different role anyway. Mm -hmm. We talked about Mary Seacole. She is about supply chain, but for her store. She just is a different person. It's a different role. You're not competitors. But I see why Florence Nightingale is jumpy because she's constantly dealing with imposters and people trying to encroach on her authority. There was a woman named Clue that was actually kind of mad and crazy. And she acted so openly, I don't know what to call it, lascivious or poorly behaved that she immediately lowered the tone of nursing in the Crimea. The reputation Florence Nightingale had been so fighting to maintain. There was a lady named Salisbury who was given charge of those special gifts that Susan was talking about, those cookies, those slippers, all the special little things she was supposed to dole out, be the quartermaster for that kind of thing. Instead, she stole them all and drank and stole supplies out of the storeroom. It's an uphill battle for Florence. This is exactly why she wanted to reform nursing, because of women like this. She also had to deal with, I cannot even believe this even happened. This actually went to the top of the army. The officers complained that their toast was not served on time. And she said, I am using those facilities to feed 500 patients right now, and I will make your toast when I'm done. And they were so offended that they actually pull that all the way up the chain of command. 
talk about that. Meanwhile, at home, though, in London, thanks, Parthenope and Mama and Queen Victoria, everyone. At home, it was like little trophies. The queen sent you a brooch her husband designed himself. Roll out the red carpet. Raise your glasses to the little lady. She's the hero of heaven. Florence's aunt had come out to help her. And her aunt wrote home, with regard to this kind of dichotomy between what was actually happening to Miss Nightingale at work and what at home people thought was happening, she wrote, Nothing can be so different as your atmosphere and ours. You hear of her as the pinnacle of human admiration. Here, opposition and dislikes are an atmosphere, and she's too busy contending with these to realize the other. Isn't that something? So at home, babies are named Florence all over the world. There were songs, there were poems, there were plays written in her honor. And meanwhile, (laughs) people are angry about toast. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So Florence went out to the actual Crimea to a hospital or two there. Technically, I think she was given authority only over the hospitals in Turkey, but the Crimea was nearby and the source of great conflict. And once she got there, she made a terrible enemy of one Dr. Hall there in a hospital in the Crimea. He was infuriated at her that she had reported back on conditions in his hospital. Like he felt like she had sicked an official inquiry on him and cast doubt upon his abilities. And he decided that he was going to stop rations from going to the nurse's at all. So for 10 days, they were not allowed to have any food at all. Uh, Now, Florence had brought her own supplies. I think she had anticipated that this kind of thing might happen, but how dirty of an ungentlemanly fool do you have to be? These people have come to help you, and he decided to try to starve them out. Uh, Extreme ungentlemanly fool? Yeah. He treated her like a beggar. He refused to see her, and she said, this is all she said about it, and keep in mind, she has to be very, very politically correct. She said, well, I'm glad to have had this experience, for cold and hunger have truly sharpened my wits. One junior doctor reported what was happening, and he was court-martialed for attacking the medical department and morale. It's just the difference between the reality and the you know, public relations spin that's going on is just so stark. The bureaucracy was just so creaky. Everybody was very, very jealous of their their power. Whatever power they had, they wanted to keep it so desperately. All of this was wearing her down. She was human and she developed what was called the Crimean fever. It began with earaches. There was laryngitis, dysentery, achy joints, fever, chills, exhaustion. At one point, though, Florence, trying to be optimistic, said it was a, quote, compound fracture of her intellect. (laughs) (laughs) Now we know that what she had was transmitted through unpasteurized milk or raw meat, but then she had no way of knowing it, and it took her out of work for weeks. At one point, she thought she was strong enough to get up and get back to work, and she couldn't even stand, so she went right back to bed. But everybody was looking out for her at this point. They fussed over her. Somebody sent her a terrier, a little dog. Another person knew that babies cheered her up, so they made a little uh, playpen near her bed so she could, you know, prattle with the baby. Parthay sent a book she had written. It was written and illustrated, just a handmade book, called The Life and Death of Athena, an Owlet from a Parthenon. Florence loved this thing. It brought her so much joy and so much laughter just getting this little book that her sister had sent. Well, see, all those little things from home really meant a lot. Mm -hmm. Everybody. So peace came at last, but not 
quite the end of her work. She closed hospitals in the Crimea and then in Turkey, and she personally wrote reports and recommendation letters for each and every one of her nurses. And she had gradually pulled together a group of loyal women who worked as a team. And had that been an uphill battle, each woman had had to go through her own process of examining her prejudices, I would say, and deciding to change them. And that's another triumph. Mm-hmm. And she had made nursing into an honorable vocation for respectable women. The reputation of the nurses under Florence Nightingale, I mean, she changed society's perception of nurses right then. The government at home wanted to bring her back with glorious fanfare, parades and speeches and banners and kids jumping up and down with little pennants in their hand. But Florence slid in incognito. False name. Big bonnet. (laughs) She did not want any of the fanfare. Mary Seacole was trying to get it, and Florence was trying to avoid it. At this point, she's 36 years old. She finally gets home to her house at Leahurst, and she collapses into bed. As one might reasonably do, having seen and done everything that she had. Also, the Crimean fever can be a chronic condition. She had spent those last few years really neglecting her health, and she was worn down and exhausted, which only gave the illness more room to kind of settle in. For the rest of her life, she is going to be operating from a reclined position. Most, I mean, she can get up every now and again, but for the most part, she's in bed, she's on the couch. She's handling things through letters. She's not up and moving around as she had been during the war. She rallied at the urging of her highly placed supporters. Please ask the queen to open an investigation into what went wrong. Not to punish people exactly or get revenge. Can we all agree? We do not wish this to happen next time that we have a war. Queen Victoria agreed, and the investigations opened. And behind the scenes, Florence Nightingale was monitoring, corresponding, crunching numbers, making what might be the first infographics to help people understand the impact of her team's findings. She had created these really elaborate pie charts. They're called coxcombs now, but she was able to track the deaths during the war by month, by case, and point out exactly what the data showed, where the problems were coming from. Because of all that data, she was able to prove that the soldiers died mostly from preventable illnesses, diarrhea, scurvy, dysentery, not from their war wounds. It's kind of a shocking revelation to people to realize that a tenth of the men who died might have died from direct contact with the enemy and everyone else had the enemy within, you know? Mm -hmm. So the pressure got a little to her. She got a little... Mm, Victorian? I don't even know. She allowed no one to see her for years at a time but servants. Even her parents and sister were forbidden for a period of some years. Sometimes the men of her commission were meeting right downstairs and she could hear them through the floor and they had to communicate with her via a note. Through this whole thing, strangely, Mama was, I wouldn't have thought it of her, selfless and calm in a way that she had never been. And she just kept bringing or sending little presents, little notes. She kept writing letters, even if the responses were curt back to her. She would not react. She would just send the nice next chatty letter. And by those channels, she kept the relationship with her daughter. She could easily have taken offense. And the mama of 20 years ago would have and Mm -hmm. had a tantrum about it. But she really, I don't know where that came from. 
Parthi was on Team Florence too. She knew that her sister didn't want anybody to see her. So she was in control of her image, quite frankly. She didn't want any images, no photographs of her, nothing in the press. At the time, however, merchandise of Florence Nightingale was so popular. There's all these little figurines and the people who made them had no idea what she looked like. (laughs) I've seen them. They all look like the little religious figurines of White Virgin Mary. Well, I told you the halo appeared even before she'd done anything, (laughs) and the war really, really polished it. Parthi was also able to take all of the clippings, anything that was said about Florence. She put them all together just to keep them for posterity. She knew that this was important. So even though she operated from the confines of her bedroom, Florence was involved in a flurry of activity. She wrote a book when she was 39 called Notes on Nursing that is still used today. It is still given as a prized gift to nursing students as they graduate from their programs. Isn't that amazing? It is. She also wrote another book called Notes on Hospitals, and it was kind of a guide for how to run and set up civilian hospitals. This fund had gathered while she was still in the Crimea to further her work, about $4.25 million in today's money. And at 40, she was to make a decision on how it was to be spent. And she decided to start a nursing school at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, which is still operating through assorted mergers, which I will not get into, as the Florence Nightingale Faculty of Nursing, Midwifery or Midwifery and Palliative Care. Here's a cool thing about that school. When people graduated, they were allowed to come see her. That's a pretty big reward since no one else could come see her. And she often sent a letter to each graduating class congratulating them and welcoming them to the sisterhood, welcoming them to the sisterhood. And those letters, while very similar to each other, have also been compiled into a little book that Mm -hmm. you can read. It was a really good program, though. They had classes for a year, then a two-year apprenticeship. And all along the way, they were compiling all those stats and all the information and all the notes that Florence felt was necessary for all their patients. So nurses will recognize that as charting. So when you chart (laughs) patients. That's the word. (laughs) Florence Nightingale began that habit. It didn't really exist before. After the two-year apprenticeship, they were sent out to train other nurses. She was asked to give a full report on the Crimean War with stats, uh, analysis, anecdotes, and the report was called Notes Affecting the Health, Efficiency, and Hospital Administration of the British Army. After some feedback, her manuscript grew to over 1,000 pages. The most shocking thing about this report was that the mortality rate in peacetime of soldiers was already two times that of civilians. Is that shocking? Even without a war, soldiers were doing worse than civilians during the Black Plague, which is pretty famous for killing people. That was a cold, hard fact that the government had to face. Lack of sanitation killed your sons, you know? And She published her findings. The outcry began to improve conditions not only in hospitals or the army, but in Britain as a whole because sanitation was on everyone's mind suddenly. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what she was training her nurses in, too. I mean, high sanitation, fresh air for their patients, you know, all that stuff that she was learning in the Crimea, she was teaching to all these new nurses and hygiene was at the top of that list. 
She drew up plans for hygienically focused hospitals in lots of different locations. I'm not sure if they ever got built, but um, perhaps her ideas got incorporated. During the outbreak of the American Civil War, the North approached her for advice on creating their military hospitals. She also provided advice to them on how to cook for troops. One of the books that she wrote was about cooking for the troops in camps and in hospitals. So she was able to help guide changes in the United States for wartime nutrition from her bed. In England. A conflict broke out in India. It was the Indian Rebellion. India had been controlled by the very powerful East India Company, and the Indians had revolted. There was war going on, and Florence wanted to go. Obviously, she couldn't, but she did everything that she could to help out. She sent questionnaires to every military post in India, asking about the soldiers, what type of illness or injury they have, what the conditions were like. She compiled all of it into a report and presented it to a commission whose job it was to help the army medical teams. The report was huge and the work that it recommended, nobody wanted to do. So somebody took her report and condensed it to be almost nothing and nothing like it was when she had presented it. For the next 38 years, it would take her and she would continue to work on making sure that the information that was in that report had been disseminated out into the field, wherever the field might be. And she helped make sweeping changes and sanitation in India. That goes on in the background while she's doing all this other stuff. She has so many balls in the air. She was also writing speeches for members of parliament to deliver in parliament. (laughs) (laughs) But not under her name because, you know, women could be angels and all that, but they could not be in parliament or involved in such. So they had to keep that all on the DL. Well, for the rest of Florence's life, she was really out of the public eye, out in the country or at a house in London that Papa bought for her, which is still there. Um, I'm so intrigued by this. It was so close to Parliament that male voices were arguing late into the night downstairs for like 45 years. (laughs) She must have loved that. Well, Mama was falling apart, and Sister Parthenope had married. At last, she was Lady Verney, but she had embarked on a career of her own as a writer, and anyway, she was too ill to come. Poor Papa was nearly blind, and he wasn't up to the task of taking care of Mama, and Florence was a nurse. So she arose from her bed of sickness and reluctantly went home as a dutiful daughter to take care of her mother, who, after Papa died was encouraged to move out, encouraged, like the boot was on her hiney, to move out because the heirs wanted to take possession of the houses. It was just like Marianne and Eleanor. Yeah. Like the heirs arrived when everyone was still living there. Their father Mm -hmm. had just died, you know, and it it was almost like the same type of situation. A very pushy heir wanted them out. So they left. And the only possible compensation was that Mama no longer fully understood what was happening. She no longer fully recognized Florence at the end, but Florence made the last years of her mother's life comfortable ones, at least physically. That was like the one thing that she didn't want to happen. That's why she was pushing Florence all those years to marry. Well, I think Florence took care of her. She didn't ever suffer uh, from poverty and living in squalor and that kind of thing. So her fears did not come true. During her later years, Florence kept in touch with reformers of all stripes, though curiously, she did not want to be involved in any way in women's suffrage, which she thought was vulgar to their great disappointment. Also, she was (laughs) suspicious of women who wanted to be doctors instead of nurses. She probably thought doctors 
weren't as useful as nurses. <laughs> Based on her experience in the Crimea, she's like, why would you want to be the second class citizen? Um, also, she became a beloved figure to the next generation of her extended family. She kept up a great correspondence with dozens of cousins' children and even their grandchildren, having none of her own. And she was not a burden to anyone. Everyone was delighted to receive notes from her. And at 88, she was given an honor, the Order of Merit by King Edward, which is an order that still exists and only 24 total members can't exist at any one time. Currently, <laughs> humorously, one of the members of the Order of Merit is Sir James Dyson, who thinks things should work properly. <laughs> also, uh, Sir David Attenborough. And of course, Prince Charles and Prince Philip are current Order of Merit holders. Florence was the first woman, and the next woman wouldn't be given that order until 1965. So she was the only woman for a very long time. What I think is so cool about her life is at one point when she was like 60, she had received the Royal Red Cross from Queen Victoria. And then at 88, she got the Order of Merit, which you just talked about, from King Edward VII. And then when she was 90... She received a royal greeting from King George. So there's three royals in her lifetime. And considering that Queen Victoria was one of them and they were about the same age, that's a great achievement because Queen mm -hmm. Victoria served a very long time. Well, that same year, the year that she got her 90th birthday greeting on Saturday, August 13th, 1910, she died in her sleep at home in London. And the government offered her family a national funeral and a place in Westminster Abbey. That's a place of honor. But respecting her wishes, the family had only a small service and she was laid to rest instead in a family plot at St. Margaret of Antioch Churchyard in Hampshire with Mama and Papa, both of whom have inscriptions on their side of the four-sided monument. And also Parthenope has an inscription, though she herself is buried with her husband's people. But true to her nature and in accordance with her own wishes, Florence's side says only FN, born 1820, died 1910. Straight into the point. Because she was a national treasure, of course, the first biography of her was published only three years after she died. The family had chosen this particular biographer to cover her life, but he got it out really fast. In 1915, a statue was put up in London honoring her. And even now, International Nurses Day is on May 12th, which is her birthday. When she was 70, she met with some of Thomas Edison's British representatives and recorded a record to sell as a fundraiser for Crimean War Vets. We still can hear that. It's on YouTube, of course. <laughs> we can hear Florence Nightingale's voice where she reads this quote, When I am no longer even a memory, just a name, I hope my voice may perpetuate the great work of my life. God bless my dear old comrades in Balaclava and bring them safe to shore. Florence Nightingale. It's so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> it is. How about some media? You got some biographies? I do. First of all, I have... A Brief History of Florence Nightingale and Her Real Legacy, A Revolution in Public Health by Hugh Small. Also, Florence Nightingale, The Collected Works of Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War by Lynn MacDonald, who edited all the letters that she wrote home about that. Nightingale's The Extraordinary Upbringing and Curious Life of Miss Florence Nightingale by Gillian Gill or Gillian Gill? Interesting Yeah, name. I think it's Gillian Gill. Is how I've been saying it. It could be wrong. Another biography, Florence Nightingale, The Making of an Icon, 
by Mark Bostridge. Tone of the two were just so very different. The Nightingale one was more novelish and kind of more flowery than the Bostridge one, which spent more time comparing myths and legends with facts. Um, I thought the Bostridge one was easier to read. Oh, yes. And then there's another one that I must be in the car. It's called Florence Nightingale Avenging Angel. Mm -hmm. But I no longer have it in my hand, so I don't remember the (laughs) author's name. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Continuing on adult books, I did fall down a little bit of a rabbit hole with A History of Celibacy from Athena to Elizabeth, Leonardo da Vinci, Florence Nightingale, Gandhi, and Cher by Elizabeth Abbott. And Cher? Yes, and Cher. We'll just have to read it. (laughs) There was a YA, maybe a middle grade, somewhere in that range, book called Bold Women of Medicine, 21 Stories of Astonishing Discoveries, Daring Surgeries, and Healing Breakthroughs by Susan Latta. I thought it was really um, a lot of information in there, especially for younger girls who want to go into medicine. There was a lot of information, a lot of stories, and a lot of role models in that particular book. Do you have any more grown-up-y books? Because there was one kid book that I just loved. So I loved to read Letters from Egypt, A Journey on the Nile by Florence Nightingale. All the letters that she sent back. It's so interesting. You get a little peek into her prejudices and also just mm-hmm. the relationship she had with the Brace Bridges is pretty good. She's a good writer. Everyone looked forward to getting these letters. So it's good that we can mm. read them too. And we can read Notes on Nursing. I got it as an Audible book, and I was on a car trip, and I was listening to it. And the information in there, it's things that we can apply in our own lives to our own families. There's a lot of good information in there, and it was pretty easy to... I mean, I didn't read it. I listened to it. UPenn actually has it on in their digital library. So if you would like to perhaps read it instead of listen to it, it is available, kind of like Project Gutenberg. They have it up on on their site. Mm Mm-hmm. There was one kid book that I hadn't come across before, I don't think, and I just thought it was so charming. It's called This Little Trailblazer, A Girl Power Primer by Juan Holub and Daniel Rude. There's Ada Lovelace to Malala. It was so adorable. And it's a board book, so you'd be reading it with your younger children. But there's a surprising number of role models in this little teeny tiny tot book. So cute. Okay. I don't have any more books. So I don't know how many of you watch The Handmaid's Tale, but if you do, you know that Elizabeth Moss plays the main character. But what you don't know is that Elizabeth Moss is developing a movie about Florence Nightingale to star Elizabeth Moss, because that's what you can do when you're a star. (laughs) It, I believe, is in pre-production right now. I'm not sure they're filming, but it's, um, it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. So I look forward to that. Me too. I Because like the previous movies made for TV, I mean, Jacqueline Smith, one of the Charlie's Angels, um, played her in the 70s. So production yeah. values for TV in the 70s being what they were, this might not be the best example. There was a little more melodrama. And then there was a another made for TV movie in 2008. But just the fact that the two main ones are made for TV makes me think that there's not been a big budget movie. Mm -mm. No, I don't think there has been. As a matter of fact, I couldn't even watch those. (laughs) Well, I watched them for enough time to realize, oh, this is this is like Fantasy Island. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I get it. Uh, We're in Dallas territory here. Okay. no, 
There were two, however, television shows that I did love, and they were the two episodes on Drunk History about Florence Nightingale. She gets two episodes. In one, they cover mostly the incident with the dog that has broken his leg. <laughs> um, yes, that is hilarious. And then the later Drunk History one that covers Florence more in detail, you could tell it is a very later in the series. They're real comfortable with each other. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> At this point, and the host and the narrator are either really good friends or really good enemies. I'm not really sure which, but it's actually kind of funny to watch. It doesn't rise to the funniness level of the Harriet Tubman episode with Octavia Spencer, but but no, it's no. still pretty good. And it's not kid friendly. No, no. Of course, no. Even though it's on Hulu. No, no, no. That was uh, Paget Brewster. She's in uh, Criminal Minds. And they had this really interesting report. And I saw her on another one. I just saw it like scrolling by. And it was a totally different drunk history. So she must be a very popular host on there. I think she's that, friends with that guy. I think so, too. They had a lot of banter going on. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually just made this year. That was July of 2019. Yeah, you can you can really you can really see the evolution in the drunk histories <laughs> as they go along. Uh, there is an article and you can find this many places, but the article I liked was in the Smithsonian Magazine online about cholera and about a man named Jon Snow that was not on Game of Thrones, but that <laughs> investigated the cause of cholera. And the article is called Jon Snow and the Broad Street Pump. He was so frustrated by authorities not listening to him that cholera was spread by contaminated water that he took the handle off of a pump and then charted the course of cholera and proved his point. So I think that is a very interesting study because we were talking about statistics and we were talking about cholera. There's a man that brought it all together for a public health good. So I liked that. I went down that rabbit hole a little bit. Also, kind of an article about her infographics from Atlas Obscura, I really found interesting. They look quite modern. They actually mm -hmm. look, look like what somebody would do in a bullet journal as an infographic, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, there's another article on an entire website devoted to statistics for the American Statistical Association. This is statistics.org. If that's your thing, <laughs> I, it, if that's your thing, this is a great website. There's all kinds of resources like for students and teachers and parents. And I was impressed by this website. You know what I thought of, though, right when you said that? And I don't know if it was your tone of voice or just like it's really late in the evening. But what I thought was that quote from The Breakfast Club, you know, you get together, you talk about physics, properties of physics. <laughs> Maybe they made this website. And if they did, good for them, because it's awesome. I just don't know why that struck me as funny. <laughs> There's also um, the Florence Nightingale.co.uk is the website for the museum, which is found at St. Thomas's. And then I'll send you the listing to what I think is the villa where she was born on VRBO, if you mm -hmm. want to check it out. However, there's another article that I read that the man went to while it was still a convent that actually shows some interior photos that are more period. So maybe mm -hmm. that would be a better place to go. That's just the maybe house, the definite house, Leah Hurst. You can visit. And I, like I said before, I'll give you a link to a virtual tour. But you can rent a room through Airbnb for 210 bucks a night. It was reviewed as sparkling clean <laughs> with one king-size bed. 
I would expect <laughs> nothing less. But me neither. Me neither. Next year is the bicentennial of her birth. So there's going to be some things at the Florence Nightingale Museum if you're in the area. Like, oh, we will be. Will we be there the right month, though? Well, I think that they're going to have all kinds of things. We'll be there the month after her birthday. So I mm. think we'll still be able to find some residual celebration. Oh, all right. Seems like our to-do list is getting really big. I know. I, know. Uh, I don't have anything else. And in closing, let us leave you with a quote from Miss Florence Nightingale herself. I attribute my success to this. I never gave or took any excuse. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Talk to Susan on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X or me at Instagram, The History Chicks, spelled the regular old way. You should go to our Facebook page to join our group. You just look for the join group button at the top of our Facebook page and answer a simple question and you're in. And people are very active in there talking about not only just the podcast, but about women's history. And we also have a feature every Tuesday called Toot Your Own Horn Tuesday, which is a place where you can proclaim your latest accomplishment. We've had people do lots of crafts. We've had people have babies. We've had people go on trips or start new jobs. You never know what you're going to find on Tuesdays. So don't miss out on the sense of community over there. We keep talking about the baby name wizard. So just go to babynamewizard.com. You can look up your own name, the names of your children, the names of your pets, and see a graphic representation of how popular the name was throughout the past century. I think Florence Nightingale would approve, even though her name does not appear anywhere on the chart. The interim song is Bravery by D.P. Kaufman, and the end song is This Little Light by Mary Ellen Kirk, both used by permission from iLicense. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All down the road, I'm gonna let Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine